0: The short and dirty of Embrace is we're a mobile infrastructure company, meaning that on behalf of our customers, whether it's like Wish or Hilton or Hyatt or Medtronic's or Goat or OkCupid, like we collect data on their behalf. And this is data that is kind of exhaust from mobile devices, including apps. We transform it into an approach that's mobile first. And then we help allow the teams within a company like a Hilton, both engineering QA, but also data science and marketing, understand that data and use it to drive business value. I'm Eric Fedorin. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Embrace.
1: This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries, who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, And today, how Eric Futterman created the future of mobile data infrastructure and observability. All this and more on Code Story. A multi-startup founder... Eric Fuderen has always focused in on being a family man. He considers himself a multi-hat wearing person, and though most entrepreneurs say that, Eric really means it. He has four degrees. No, really, four. One in electrical engineering, computer science, a JD, and an MBA. He really likes to learn, and is constantly reading and learning from people, books, and of course, his family. He has found that his JD has really helped him understand the legal world, as it applies to the startup world, specifically SPACs, Special Purpose Acquisition Groups. He's digging into what the implications will be in the future for SPACs, and he's got an interesting perspective on that. He's got two young boys, five and eight, and has felt the pains of many parents through the pandemic with kids being home. Other than startups in school, he likes to get outdoors as much as he can, doing some hiking or spending time at the beach. During his past successes at Scopely, one of the largest game builders in the world, he realized in the early innings of mobile that there were no mobile-first data sources, enabling businesses to capture all mobile session data. This is the creation story of Embrace.
0: The short and dirty of Embrace is we're a mobile infrastructure company meaning that on behalf of our customers, whether it's like Wish, or Hilton, or Hyatt, or Metronix, or Goat, or OkCupid, like we collect data on their behalf, and it's data that is kind of exhaust from mobile devices, including apps. We transform it into an approach that's mobile first, and then we help allow the teams within uh, a company like a Hilton, both engineering, QA, but also data science and marketing, understand that data and use it to drive business value. The basis of the company started actually from my previous one, so I was a co-founder of Knock on Wood, the one of the largest mobile games company in North America or the Western world, uh, called Scopely. So I personally built games like Yahtzee. Walking Dead, uh, I was involved in WWE, Wheel of Fortune, and a ton of other ones. Uh, I think six, number one, free-to-play mobile games. I was fortunate to be early innings of mobile, like smartphones have really been only around like our iPhones for 10 years, which in the grand scheme is a pretty short period of time. So there's been a lot of technology and just core uh, infrastructure, uh, to use that word again, uh, required and not built for all the teams that I mentioned. Why I built it was literally this use case. So when we had a problem, like for Walking Dead, like a frozen startup, or something that kind of exhibited itself like a crash, but wasn't, like an app just closing, and that technically can't be a crash for Unity game, or can, but it's very rare. um, I just wanted to literally look myself up and see what happened. Uh, And that data was all over the place, or not collected at all. It'd be super helpful to have all that data in one place. And what that's turned into is a mobile observability and data play, uh, and that's embraced. So the ability to kind of collect every session about every user is super helpful to drive observability for engineers all the way to data science, being able to actually do real churn and LTV calculations, because no other tool has every session and is keyed on every user.
1: Well, let's jump into that part of the story then. So tell me about that MVP, how you went up to it, um, how long it took you to build it, and what sort of tools you used to bring it to life.
0: I think a lot of founders make this mistake. (laughs) So I'm pretty open about it. I obviously had been in games and in mobile for a period for six or seven years at that point. And I built it for myself. Like I was a product focused founder. Uh, and the core that I needed in games was to understand uh, stability and optimization by cohort. Like payers, clan leaders, new users, and understand where their experiences were failing or needed to be optimized. Because at the end of the day, games is a really simple equation, actually all mobile apps. It's the value of your user and it has to be greater than the cost to acquire them. The problem with mobile is the workflow, the release times, they're all very delayed by the nature of just the submission process, if nothing else. Also, it's compiled code, so the releases just take longer than on the web. Because of that delay, often your LTV lowers before you realize it. And if it gets lower than CPI, you often don't realize it when it happens, uh, which is a very scary proposition. Your game is dead. It's a death spiral at that point. It's really hard to climb yourself out of it. And so I built something that allowed me to look at that, like collect every session. So we wanted to make sure that we understood every user's experience. And we wanted to make sure that from an MVP perspective, that was cost-effective, which I think historically hasn't been true, but the changes in the technology landscape has made it true. And then I made it by cohort. Uh, And to be honest, when we started bringing this to non-games, our initial thesis was, let's go to the next wave. So we went after e-commerce, media, and productivity apps. We were blowing people's minds. It was way too detailed. So our MVP was an MVP that quickly we killed and readjusted.
1: When you're building an MVP, you gotta make certain decisions and trade-offs, right? Tell me about some of those decisions and trade-offs you had to make and, and how you cope with them.
0: Yeah, the the goal of any MVP, I mean, it's true whether it was ad tech, which I did before Scopeway, or a game is a really good example, because you have to get that game out as fast as you can into people's hands. Otherwise, you could be building absolutely the wrong thing. Or in a SaaS business, uh, same is true, just a different time scale. You try to focus on the two to three questions and exclude everything else, even if it's super painful. Like an embrace, a kind of... Uh, alluded to it, but our number one question was could we collect every session cost-effectively? So we built a lot of the infrastructure that we wouldn't normally have built ahead of time. Uh, that kind of goes against the idea of a traditional MVP where you try to use this kind of quick acting technologies uh, to just get something out. In our case, that wasn't the truth. And then the second piece is could we just focus on one business use case? I think with companies like Embrace, where your intent is to be a data plan f- platform and you collect a lot of data, you can get really stuck in the data. Uh, and it's very common where you get so much data, you almost have a hard time deciding what to do with it and you get data paralysis. Uh, and there's lots of companies that at the end of the day say their data is valuable, but it's not because they haven't made it actionable. Collecting data for data sake is worthless. You have to create insights and actionability. So we focused on one, use case, which was that could we segment users and show a stability metric for every single segment. That was the only use case. There were lots of things we excluded initially, like could we just do network monitoring, which no one was doing well on mobile, uh, which is super impactful, but indirectly related to the business case. We excluded crash reporting initially, like the world on mobile not just apps, but IoT and point of sale and cars, like anything running on Android or iOS is overwhelmingly focused on code exceptions, uh, probably to a fault. But we didn't build it initially because it was a loss of focus. Like we knew the value wasn't necessarily there, but if our business model worked, we'd have to come back to it later. And we had to, like about a year and a half later, once we figured out our core use case and tested it, we had to build crash reporting. Like, there was no go-to-market without it. And so it was super painful to have to build something that we knew wasn't necessarily driving a ton of business value, but we couldn't go to market without it.
1: So you, know, you got MVP. You, you're building a process around how you determine what's the next thing to build. How did you progress the product from there and then continue building out your roadmap? And really, I'm interested in how you decided what was the next most important thing to build?
0: I'm going to wax academic a little bit, but it's not just those decisions, it's how you gather the feedback. And it's kind of, everybody says like, use your customers as your feedback source, but that's really easy to say, and it's really hard to implement. And so the way I think about it is what customers do I want? So you have to pick the customers which is really hard. We had people coming to us like games initially, which we excluded, that wanted to use our product. And we said, no, you're going to give us the wrong feedback. It's not going to be representative of the ecosystem. So you pick your customers and you try to pick the profile that will give you the feedback that will align you to the bet you're making uh, and test the assumptions. Number two is you have to structure your team around gathering that feedback. So we purposefully built customer success early and we created uh, a different profile for them. We actually made them data analysts because we're a data company. So by doing that, they're not necessarily the best at traditional customer success, like account management and generating upsells and resells and revenue, but they're really good at looking at the data, providing insights at every touch and creating feedback. Uh, But we also, the lead of customer success was also our head of product. So part of the reason I even wanted to do this business model in SaaS is because the product to feedback loop what could be zero by aligning product and CS together, we actually made that loop like instantaneous. When if you split those two, it actually becomes a point of friction for most SaaS companies. And in games, it was delayed because of it, which was brutal. And then the third, yeah, our product choices and how do you gather that feedback, and that's the paradigm everybody talks about. Like, but it's totally true. When you're going after a mid-market or bigger play for an infrastructure technology company like Embrace, we're not looking for thousands of customers, we're looking for hundreds. We have every one of them on Slack. I would constantly be traveling and getting beers with the personas like the executives uh, and getting their feedback and showing them the dashboard and asking them about the data, like constant. It, It irks me that we're almost reaching a stage where I'm gonna start separating from that and hiring people like product managers to which we already have to gather that feedback but that at the beginning that is one of the primary roles of the founding team especially the ceo
1: well then let's switch to team so how did you go about building your team and what did you look for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you
0: at embrace i think that the key was finding a co-founder who is technical who had built uh, data at scale. So without that, there is absolutely no way we can build this business model. But also somebody that kind of has this balance, and I recommend this to anybody thinking about founding a company. You're not looking for your best friend. You're gonna have fights. So founding something with a best friend actually creates really perverse incentives on how you talk. But you do want somebody that obviously you can get along with and you can have a fight and recover from it. So we were friends, but I, we weren't close friends uh, before Embrace. When I came to him and started talking about ideas, he knew exactly what I was doing. I was uh, seeing if he wanted to co-found a company. Uh, and it's been fantastic. Like he built three mobile analytics companies. He, was the, he built the analytics of record for like Pokemon Go. So he knows scale at an absurd level, which we need. Um, and we're already past that scale. Uh, so that's part one, find a good co-founder. And pri- prioritize the the skill like that was the skill we needed to make this company work, and there are a lot of other things that I think again co-founders prioritize and shouldn't like both of you don't need to recruit well so don't look for somebody who matches your skill set match based on the one thing that you think is absolutely important and make sure that you can work together and that you can fight and recover. Yeah, so um, I mean in SaaS. The first thing is how do you get to the MVP, which is engineering talent. And that can be both consulting, which is temporary, which can be helpful because it's really hard to adjust when you hire full time people. But you hire engineers first and foremost. And then we started looking for data analysts because as a data company, we needed to dig in the data so that we had the insights to build the product uh, as opposed to building the product and trying to use that as the way to gather insights. From a culture perspective, I'm keen. So I was, I will again, date myself a little bit, but my first job out of college was at a company called Trilogy, which if you're over, I'd say 35, you're probably aware of. They were really good at hiring on two axes uh, and Google and a bunch of other companies actually use their framework. One is culture and one is skill. And I would highly recommend that no matter how good somebody is on the skill axis, if you don't get culture right, you're screwed. You can over-engineer culture, which we do, but at the end of the day, it's the people you hire that create the culture, and it's moderately out of your control. So we ding people all the time, purely on culture. You have to really talk about it a lot, and it feels really hokey, because it's, especially for engineers. Early on, we, we put the tenants down for our company. It doesn't matter if they're right or wrong. It's the exercise that's important and just writing them down. And then we literally came up with questions that each person will test for each tenant. During the interview process, you're only allowed to focus on one tenant uh, because otherwise you're just overlapping and making less informed decisions as a team. So each person has specific questions for each tenant and they focus on one. uh, And then you talk about them together. But it it forces focus, it forces the questions, it forces you to benchmark across people. Uh, The mistake people make is two things. One is they ask different questions to each candidate and then there's no benchmark And then it becomes a gut feel which you will always get wrong and then the two second thing is you will default into two psychological things one is if you don't have a framework you will hire people like yourself which is death to a startup Uh, and two is you'll hire people that you want to go out and get beers with which is not what you want to build a team for you're not building teams for fun as much as you want to go out and get beers with them but not everybody is going to be your best friend you need that variety so don't Like, it's great if they happen to be somebody you want to get a beer with, but that's not what you hire for.
1: Let's flip to scalability. Uh, Did you build this to scale efficiently from day one, or are you kind of fighting this as you grew? I think you have
0: to fight it to some extent, uh, because you don't always predict the scale you're going to be at as soon as you are, if you're successful. The second is there are always trade-offs, like even on scalability. Like you have to make choices and it, it's devils in the detail for tech scale. Our premise for the company, as I mentioned, was could we collect every session for every user and all the behavioral and technical data in those sessions, which think about like an OkCupid, like that's massive amount of data. That's probably more data about their app than they're collecting themselves. So we, we built to be able to do that and then to transform it into a time-based way So getting technical, like we quickly jumped into the time-based database world, which four or five years ago was kind of nascent. So we used a database called ClickHouse and it's matured a lot over the last couple of years and has been great, but we've definitely been on the ride for that one. Uh, And it's not always great to, and I generally recommend not staking your company on an unproven technology, but in our case, we had no choice. Like a lot of people, a lot of engineers specifically, they're like, Let's build a mobile app. I'm gonna choose Flutter. Well, we have Flutter's only been around for a year and a half. Only company that's ever used it scale is Google, and they're the ones that invented it. They pick like Node.js. I remember that early Scopely. We're like, we'll build our backend in Node. Well, it doesn't scale, and we're not the ones that wanna figure it out. So then you have to switch to a new technology, and those are choices you shouldn't be making. They slow you down. Again, it's a focus question for MVP like the core question you're trying to answer in this case is can we store the data and analyze it at a cost-effective way? And scale is a different question. Scale in my mind uh, is not just cost, but it's ability obviously to take more consumption, like consume more and not have a linear equation on your ability to reach, for lack of a better way to put it, like hit your KPIs and reach your SLAs. So those types of things we continually refactor and work on uh, as the company's grown and scaled. And we've added like, companies like games companies whose session data is massive. Or uh, we recently signed a large uh, co- like pre-IPO texting and calling company. And that those numbers of sessions, like people are in and out of those apps like 20 to 30 times a day. And each time they're in and out, it's a session. So it's massive scale.
1: Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? I think it'll be
0: cliche, but I'm I'm an emotional founder. Part of the reason I like being at a small and growing company, and I've been lucky enough to have companies that have reached massive scale, is that I get to have a personal relationship. Like you hear the chatter in the office, you get to joke around. And as the company reaches, I'd say about 30 to 50 people, like I feel like, like it's happening, it's happened in Embrace already. Like we're now a manager. Uh, and then you reach like 50 to 100, and then you're only hanging out with the execs. It's just natural uh, human nature and how new hires perceive you. But I think what I'm most proud of is that I've kept close to a lot of those people over the years. So I'm definitely proud of that. Like it's a matter of integrity and, I call it the pillow test, being able to go to bed at night and sleeping well.
1: Well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it.
0: The biggest mistake I personally made I think is I'm generally pretty conservative on product market fit. I definitely self-categorize myself as a paranoid founder. And I'm laughing at myself right now. You can't see my face. And a paranoid founder generally doesn't believe they get product market fit until it's like in the rear rear, view mirror. But the hard part with the startup is you have to take bets before the foundation for those bets have matured. Momentum is king and you gotta bet early. And I think one of the things, it ended up being a good thing, which is cliche, but we should have invested sooner in sales and marketing uh, pre-COVID. And that definitely slowed us down like our growth rate declined because we weren't it still was good but it wasn't as good as it could be which is obviously very important in a growing startup world where you're going for for it all uh go big or go home for this type of company and so by not doing that early enough we definitely hindered ourselves in the long like over that period of time and it's a hard bet to make Sales and marketing you generally make mistakes on, like every SaaS company seems to screw up on their first sales hire because you learn about what you need by trial by fire. So that's not really a mistake that I'd say is a bad thing, the hiring of that salesperson. The bad thing was we didn't hire that person fast enough. Uh, We got lucky in some ways, although no one can say this is lucky, but I'm glad I didn't because when COVID hit, we had to redo our entire go-to-market strategy. Like our price points are large enough that we need to be in person and obviously our go-to-market had to completely change. So we switched to like an SDR model with an outbound and inbound strategy for marketing. So we ended up hiring, we would have ended up hiring different people for sales and marketing post-COVID than we would have pre-COVID.
1: So what does the future look like for your product and for your team? So from a team perspective, which I'm, I'm
0: most proud of uh, is we're obviously growing at this point like we are around 40 people now if we are not 70 to 100 by end of year I'd be shocked um, we're feeling it on every axis uh, the pain of not having people which is what you want to feel if people get sit pretty in a startup you know you're not growing quick enough so from a team perspective our goal is keep the culture as tight as we can but Uh, Now we're betting on the future. Like, let's hire the roles we need for Q4 now so that they have a time to ramp up and make the bet that we're gonna achieve the goals that we need to in Q4, both revenue and net retention and all the, the magic gross SaaS company metrics. From a product perspective, we're in a fascinating point and I wish I had predicted a lot of it, but the world of the Snowflake, Databricks, Azure, data robot world is is crazy and has totally rocked everything that tech is for the last two years. On the other axis, the observability world has been fantastic. Like, Datadog is a monster of a company. So, we sit between those. Like, observability is our real time access to our data. Uh, our roadmap is 100% leveraging that data for other teams. So, entering the Snowflake world, the BigQuery world, uh, and allowing uh, the transformed data that we have already to be re-transformed from an ELT as opposed to ETL's perspective and used by data science and the product analytics teams, whether with like a data robot or a looker or through our own tool set. I think if we can get those two pieces right, the full mobile infrastructure story, we're a billion dollar company.
1: Let's switch to you, Eric. Tell me who influences the way that you work, CEO, CTO, really any person. Name a person that you look up to and why.
0: I wouldn't say look up to, but I definitely, and he'll kill me for it, but he's a friend of mine. But I also think about like archetypes that I've had historically that I think have been good at certain facets of their job that I'd like to pull in. So I would be remiss in not mentioning my co-founder at Scopely, Walter, who's probably the best fundraiser I will ever meet. Uh, He is magical on understanding the story that he needs to tell and matching it to the actual roadmap the company is undergoing. And being able to tell that story, especially for somebody like me, who's got an engineering background, is is a a learned skill. So it's been great. It's been amazing to partner with him and, and see how he instruments that story and is very strategic about it and how he presents it and who he presents it to. I think on the other end, I had an amazing manager once in my life. I did a brief stint at IBM. Uh, I wasn't built for it, which he knew and laughed about, um, but he he was a partner uh, in the consulting services. We did kind of a—I was part of like kind of like the McKinsey of IBM and I have great stories of uh, kind of office space type stories. Uh, being in that role at, at IBM but he was amazing people manager like he was extremely empathetic but not to a place that would restrict his ability to to train and grow you like you can be overly empathetic and then it makes it hard to create the friction that you need for everybody to grow and to be successful and he towed that line as good as I will ever see anybody so I give him huge kudos and I definitely think about its name's Patrick Antoine. I think about him a
1: lot. That's awesome. I really like you uh, talking about that balance between empathy and friction. That's a really, really concise way to to say that. As far as you know, what what managers uh, need to strive for. So I, I definitely appreciate that. It's a hard balance. I think,
0: especially founders. Most founders are overly friction, and those are the horror stories that you hear.
1: We talked about mistakes, but a little bit different spin. If you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently? Or where would you consider taking a different approach?
0: There are always moments in your life that you wonder you could have done them differently. Um, I think about the first role that I had a lot coming out of college. And it's interesting coming out of college because you just don't even know what questions to ask. You just haven't seen enough to benchmark and and in some ways that's just naivete but natural Um, so my first role i didn't even realize that i was a sales engineer until i started hiring them i had embraced like so many years later i think i wish that i had understood what product is at a tech company and sales eng at a much deeper level and understood the career path that i would have taken The dots would have been shorter, like my path to the role that I'm now, which was always my goal, would have been a hell of a lot shorter. And I honestly would have had more companies to found and more shots on goal if I had understood at the beginning what roles were, what my skill set is and how
1: it would have matched. Last question, Eric. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? So, well,
0: if it's the next big thing and it's a potential to be a huge company and I believe in it, my best advice would be asking them for a job.
1: Uh,
0: I'm not a a bad hire. And sometimes it's not so bad to take a back seat and be the one that executes as opposed to the the front and center founder. Um, just different mental states and different responsibilities. I think the core. Let's assume that the company is relatively early on, and that there's a lot of time ahead of it. Uh, I think the core advice that I would give to any founder is make sure you love it, and and loving means the central piece of it. Like no company ends where it starts, whether it's Facebook or Microsoft or whatever. Like they all say they do, but the model changes. You have to love what is underlying it. Like for me, it's always been something around data and, and grinding through it, whether it's games or, or embrace or ad tech. And if you don't love that, like you're not going to be able to survive the, the length of time the company is going to take. Like you have to assume this company is going to be around for over 10 years. And then you're going to be involved because you're a founder for that period of time. And if you don't love it and you're not willing to breathe it every day, you're on the wrong path.
1: That's great advice. Well, Eric, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Embrace. Thanks for having me. This is fun. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Thanks for having me. This is fun. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Labhart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com/codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.